0: So we're continuing it in John chapter 8, and uh, we we made it to verse 31 last time. We'll finish with verse 31. We're not going to quite finish chapter 8, but I think we can get within striking distance to be able to finish it tomorrow. Uh, Last week, what we looked at specifically is a a stern warning that Jesus had to the religious leaders, and that was uh, a warning over the very severe consequences of rejecting him. And at the end of, of that warning, we see what looks like this glimmer of hope in verse 30. Verse thirty says that many in the crowd believed in him. But if we've been paying close attention in John's gospel, we also realize that there's belief, and then there's belief. And I've got lowercase b's and uppercase b's on those two in my notes. Uh, As we quickly see, if we kind of follow along, um, the the apparent belief that we see in verse thirty is only that small b kind of belief that we see in the gospel of John. It's not authentic faith. What does the crowd believe? Well it doesn't say so we, we do have to kind of think but if we look back over the Gospel of John we see these two other significant encounters where small b belief is uh, exhibited. Where the, the crowd seems to believe in Jesus but then when Jesus confronts that belief that he knows is inadequate and challenges it, it's shown to be inadequate and the crowds eventually turn away from him. Uh, the, the first crowd that we see This is in Jerusalem at the very beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry. They believe in Jesus, probably in the sense that he's an Old Testament prophet or or something along those lines. They they don't see him as as more than that. The second kind of significant issue where Jesus is confronting a crowd would be uh, the Bread of Life discourse right after the feeding of the 5,000. This crowd is very excited about Jesus, they follow him into the wilderness. They're ready to make Jesus uh, their king. They're convinced that he's the Messiah, and they're ready to put their lives into his hands and ready to take on the Romans. That Messiah must need an army. They're ready to enlist, and they're expecting Jesus to establish a physical kingdom. Jesus teaches them that they, they shouldn't be working for food that perishes, and I think that By that, he means anything in this world, whether it's literal food that they're kind of asking for or whether it's a physical kingdom or anything in between those. But they're instead to work for food that endures to eternal life. And at first, that food sounds appealing to them. They're quite interested, at least in the extent that it might involve another miraculous provision in this world. But once they learn that Jesus is offering them himself, they don't have any taste for that. They they can accept a Messiah as a military leader, and kind of ironically, they can accept a Messiah that needs them to help him. But they won't accept their need for a Savior uh, for their personal eternal life. A Savior that doesn't need them, but they need, is not one that they're willing to accept. Jesus, in, it's and in, it's really clear in the text that it's Jesus' insistence that they needed him, not works or an ethnicity, that causes that crowd to abandon Jesus. So now we have Jesus in Jerusalem again. At, this is at the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths is looking back to the Exodus. In, uh, there's a, a water-pouring ceremony that's a very important part of this feast that we have kind of recorded how that is in Josephus. There's also uh, a uh, ceremony where they light two large uh, torches. Uh, more than torches, it's enough to kind of light the entire city of Jerusalem. And these are looking back at the water that Jesus miraculously prov- that well it is Jesus but God pr- provided to the Israelites in the wilderness by striking the rock and it's looking back to the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day that, that led God's people. Uh, Jesus claimed just in the, the previous verses to be that water and to be that, the light that these Old Testament types are pointing to. Jesus is the water that sustains God's people And Jesus is God protecting His people, manifesting His presence to His people, and leading His people through the wilderness to the Promised Land. As Jesus is defending these claims, He's claiming to be God incarnate, and that's the the gist of the argument that He's making. And so I would say that when the crowds believed in Him, they, they must believe something along those lines. They seem to at least initially be accepting Jesus' claims to be God incarnate. And I warned you last week, and I'll I'll continue that warning that I'm slightly on thin ice because I can't find a commentary that would quite come out and say this. Uh, So I'm simply giving you the reasons that I see for it. We also went through last week how it isn't enough to believe that Jesus is God. You need to realize your need for God. It's not simply accepting a bunch of intellectual facts, no matter how correct those facts are about Jesus. It's coming to Jesus for salvation and embracing Him as your Savior. uh, That is what, what is the difference between inadequate and adequate faith. If this is correct, we do see a, this really nice progression where the crowds you know, at first believe that Jesus is a figure from God, and that's shown to be inadequate. Then the crowds are accepting that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's still not adequate. Finally, the crowds are even believing that Jesus might be God incarnate, but that's not adequate. And in all instances, it's, very, it's made very clear in the text that they need to see their need for him. And Jesus is going to uh, confront an inadequate faith. So that uh, when, when Jesus sees that apparent belief, he tests it. And that's the verse that we kind of finished with. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth, truth will set you free. There's a lot in that statement, but it's kind of telling what the crowd seizes on in that statement. It, it, it's the very end that Uh, Implies that they need need to be be set free and we'll come back to this idea as we kind of keep going so we're ready to get back to verse 30 and so I'll go ahead and read the section that we're going to look at technically we're starting at 31 but I think verse 30 although it's not shown in your Bibles probably belongs with this section rather than with the previous section and so for the context I'll include it here as he was saying these things many believed in him the sun remains forever so if the sun sets you free you will be free indeed i know that you were offspring of abraham yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you i speak of what i have s- seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father so first of all it, it, it's worth noting that jesus is beginning this statement with a warning and that warning is um, if you abide in my word. <clears throat> um, Jesus it, it wants the crowd to go from simply believing in him to you, authentic faith, and that's uh, what we're going to be looking at today. What does Jesus mean by this phrase, abide in my word? So he seems to realize that the crowd sees Jesus maybe as an add-on that isn't essential to their spiritual life, but it, but not the foundation of that. The crowd's already assured of their standing with God as we've seen before throughout the gospel by their ethnicity, their sons of Abraham, uh, and and by their works but they they don't see the necessity of abiding in Jesus' word and we're going to come back to some of those ideas too but one thing I would like to look at is that an adequate faith a, a saving faith is a faith that abides in Jesus' word spurious faith, which is what the crowd is going to be shown to exhibit, might embrace Jesus. And it might look externally every bit as enthusiastic, often even more enthusiastic than than genuine faith. But it doesn't have root. Um, uh, Someone with spurious faith, just to kind of use the analogy that is used in the parable of the sower, might sprout with just as much promise as any other uh, seed, but those seeds are quickly scorched by the sun and die. They, do, they don't have the root that's necessary to sustain faith. Genuine faith is a faith that has deep roots. Genuine faith has found Jesus to be the bread of life. It's a faith that hungers for Jesus and it's a faith that knows um, that the only satisfaction for our soul's hunger comes from Jesus. And it knows that because it's experienced that. It's experienced sustaining itself on Jesus. Um, Genuine faith, it will always return to Jesus because there's nowhere else to go for the words of eternal life. Spurious faith can show itself by leaving Jesus decisively. And there's a a critical element uh, of authentic faith that's clearly taught in 1 John 2, 19, and sorry, that did not make it onto my slide, so I'll just go ahead and read it. Um, you'll, you'll see that you, some of the wording and the concept is similar. This, you, when we're hearing Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're hearing the way that you, John remembers it, and it does tend to take on a little bit of the sound that John has, and I think John probably took on a little bit of the way that Jesus explained things in, in turn. So in First John, John is writing to encourage a group of believers that are are struggling, and a big part of their struggle is that a large part of the church has left decisively. Uh, They seem to be embracing something known as, as Gnosticism, which we won't get into. But in describing this group that has abandoned the faith, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. The statement's a little bit convoluted and a little bit redundant, but John is really trying to emphasize the, the point by saying it several times in several ways, that your genuine faith continues, and you know, spurious faith is a faith that would deci- decisively abandon uh, the gospel and uh, abandoned authentic Christianity. And in fact, the, the fact that these individuals that John is talking about were never Christians is, um, can only be attributed in, in, in John's statement to their failure <clears throat> to abide in, Je- in, in Jesus' words that makes it plain that they were never among God's people. Now, this of course brings us to the Reformed doctrine that's known as the perseverance of the faith. Often, m- not in this do- denomination so much, but a lot of other denominations, including the kind of the tradition that I came out of, this would this doctrine would be referred to as eternal security. And the you know, kind of the simple definition that a lot of people would be able to state for eternal security is once saved, always saved. And that's true, but it, it's only one side of a coin, and it's kind of a it it, it contains dangerous omissions. Um, historically, the doctrine has emphasized with roughly equal emphasis the the other side of the coin that would state that those that are genuinely saved will persevere with their faith to the end. And there's a really good summary in uh, J.C. Ryle's commentary. It's not beginning, but continuing a religious profession that is the test of true grace. The converse, which is seen in verse 31, throws light on our Lord's meaning. You are not truly my disciples unless you continue steadfast in my doctrine. Our Lord teaches, and this is still quoting Ryle, our Lord teaches the, the great principle that steady continuance is the only real safe proof of discipleship. No perseverance, no grace, no continuance in the word, no real faith or, or conversion. This is one of the meeting points between uh, the Calvinist and Arminian. He that has true grace will not fall away. He that falls away has no true grace and must not flatter himself that he is a disciple. Um, now Ryle is writing more than a hundred years ago when the Arminians I think were more rigorous in their you know, uh, attempts to make Arminian, Arminianism work with Scripture and they recognized that the Scripture clearly taught the same thing. And so Historically, Arminian theology taught that you, perseverance in, in, uh, in the f- faith is necessary. The version of Arminianism that I grew up in uh, would not have taught that. So you'll, you'll certainly see other versions of Arminianism than what Ryle is referring to today. Now, it should be mentioned here that genuine believers may well stumble, although they won't ultimately fall away without returning. And a, a really classic example of that is Peter and his denial of Christ. Uh, certainly an instance where he stumbled, but he returned and he repented. And we, we see throughout church history other examples of that as well. Uh, sometimes we see Christians that hold up well under persecution, but sometimes we see Christians that, that stumble in the face of persecution and they may, may turn away for a time, but come back. I think the important question is, you know, would we do better uh, than you know, Peter or some of these other individuals? And I would answer that on our no-no. But I think an important aspect to understand about this doctrine is that we're not on our own. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints from the Reformed tradition has never stated that the perseverance uh, in faith is something that we produce. All of salvation is a gift from God. And that doesn't mean that it's just the faith that's an important component of salvation that's a gift from God but it's everything that's a part of salvation that's a gift from God and that would include the perseverance that's clearly required in the scripture. Perseverance perseverance is something that God supplies and a lot of reformed theologians will uh, refer to this doctrine not as the perseverance of the saints but the perseverance of God with his people or the preservation of the saints. And I think both of those probably more accurately get at what this doctrine states. God's people will persevere, not because there's anything intrinsically better about them than any other person, but because it's God that will keep them. And this is an idea that we're going to come to in more detail in John chapter 10. Um, The next question I think that's worth looking at in this verse is, what is the truth that the crowd needs to embrace to be set free. And you know, a, a simple answer to that, probably not a bad one, would simply be the gospel. But I think if we look at the context, we can get a little bit more uh, specific there. The truth would be that they're, they're desperate sinners. They're at, at enmity with God without hope and they're facing perfect justice for their sins. But they don't realize it. They do owe a debt that they don't have an opportunity to, or a, the ability to repay, although they think they, they do. And While all of that is is perfectly true and Jesus is teaching it, every human being will ignore or avoid or redefine or twist or distort reality to try to avoid seeing that truth. There is a remedy, but it's only found in abandoning the hope that one has in oneself and placing that hope firmly in Jesus Christ. One's confidence should entirely be in the person and the work of Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. The crowd, on the other hand, is desperate to maintain the hope that they, they brought with them with their descent from Abraham and their works. The heart of the gospel is realizing how completely we need Jesus and how perfectly Jesus meets our, our greatest and our deepest needs, or our greatest and our deepest need, uh, more accurately, I think. <clears throat> so with this in mind, I think we're, we're seeing we're, uh, already what it is that the, the crowd's rejecting and they, they seize on this statement, the truth will set you free. Um, it's, it's not the most important part of what's Jesus saying, and so it's, it's very telling that they're seizing on that because it's the fi- part that they find offensive, and it's, you know, offensive for the same reason that Nicodemus and the crowds, um, or the, the crowds, you know, that uh, apparently believed in Jesus but not in an adequate way around the incident with Nicodemus and the way the crowds at the bread of life discourse rejected Jesus. They were willing to accept Jesus as a teacher from God or they might accept Jesus as their idea of the Messiah and I I would argue at least that this crowd is ready to accept Jesus as God is in the flesh but all of them are rejecting their personal need for him. In their minds it's that heredity and that practice that's acceptable. Uh, They're they're blind to the spiritual slavery that they're under. <clears throat> um, there's a, an interesting irony in, in the, the crowd's response that you know, they've never been slaves to anyone. Um, if you look at Jewish history, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. During the period of the judges, they were enslaved by seven uh, at least seven different ites, uh, some of the surrounding na- uh, nations, that are, are the different names are kind of difficult to, to even remember. Uh, they've been enslaved at various points to Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and the most recently they kind of alternated control between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. That uh, they were kind of on the border between two different portions of Alexander's. Empire it was a very difficult time because these you know, empires were kind of constantly going back and forth and they were trading hands during that period. And finally, they're enslaved to Rome. There's a particularly ironic twist. This discourse and this exchange is taking place in the temple courts. And all you would have needed to do is just sort of look up and you would see the towers of the fortress Antonia that the Romans had you know, hundreds or thousands of troops in that were garrisoned there to, to maintain the peace and to keep their thumb on the Jewish people and prevent you know, any hint of uprising. So I, I think John would like us to see that this crowd is you know, equally b- uh, blind to their present physical bondage in the same way that they're uh, blind, blind to their bondage to sin. The, you, the freedom that Jesus is talking about from slavery to sin that you know, Jesus is promising here can't be seen without understanding the extent to which we are slaves to sin. If we think back to the garden with Eve, you know, Eve saw the ability to determine right and wrong for herself and not to depend, God or depend on God to declare what's right and what's wrong that sounded to her like freedom in the garden and that has sounded to every human being since then uh, like freedom. It's the ability to, to do what we want without constraint from God and that sounds very promising to, to most uh, people and I, I would certainly argue to every unre- unregenerate individual. Uh, this appears to be freedom but it, it's in fact slavery. The trouble with this apparent freedom is that there's this desire to sin and that desire to sin is that this desire that's destructive not just to ourselves but it's a desire that's destructive to others as well. Worse, it's a desire that cuts us off from fellowship with God, and God is the only source of true joy, peace, and contentment. And the problem with this apparent freedom is that we can't not sin. We might have the freedom to decide how we sin, at least to some extent. Some would choose to sin rather spectacularly and scandalously. Some might focus on more socially acceptable uh, sins. And some, in fact, would embark on a particularly destructive path where they disguise their sin as religion. And they delude themselves into thinking that they're performing well enough that God is somehow impressed with this sin that's disguised as religion. But whatever path anyone chooses as as a sinner, it will produce nothing but sin. Christ offers freedom from that. Um, Believers are able to see sin for what it is, and they're able to hate it not because of its consequences but because it gets in the way of deeper fellowship with God. An unbeliever can only see sin as something that gets in the way of their happiness. The unbelievers certainly recognize sometimes the destructive effects of sin. You know, a, a drug addict may well hate their addiction to drugs but they don't hate that addiction because it's sin, they hate it because of the destruction that uh, results from it. They, they can only see sin as something that gets in the way of their happiness. They uh, will often, you know, hate certain sins, but again, it's that, that consequences. What they don't do is they, they, they will never hate sin simply because it's sin or simply because it's offensive to God. Uh, with regeneration, Christians, though, are able to do actual good works, and an unbeliever cannot do a good work. That's clearly stated in Scripture, and we'll come to this idea later in the Gospel of John, not, not necessarily in this half. It might be in the second half, which is probably going to be years away. Um, and we, we, we see that. You know, there's unbelievers that build hospitals. There's unbelievers that devote their lives to the f- fight for justice, fighting for kind of genuinely good causes, you know, fighting things that are genuinely wrong, and, you know, many other good works. The trouble with these, though, is that they're always infused with sin. There, there may be pride there, or a desire for acclaim. There may even be a, a desire to try to atone for their own misdeeds. Uh, that might be very subtle and under the surface, but, you know, whatever works they do will be infused with sin, and I think more significantly, those works are not done with any intention whatsoever of giving any glory to God. A Christian, though, can do good works, and those works are good in the sense that they genuinely glorify God. Now, those works aren't ever done perfectly. They're always infused by sin as well. But there's an element to those where God is being glorified, and that's the, the difference that it you know, makes that maybe an imperfect work, but still a good work. Um, the let's see, you know, the the unbeliever I think it is re- remaining firmly enslaved to the sin, and they can't help but love some types of sin. Let me uh, go ahead and move on to verse thirty-five. Um, I'll just read this section uh, to kind of get us back in the thinking of this. The slave does not remain, or sorry, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you were offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So, next up, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to provide a picture of the difference between slavery and sh- sonship. And he'll do this in terms of sin's power. So let, let's look at what Jesus means in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So Jesus is referring, of course, to something that's very familiar in this culture. Thankfully, it's uh, not familiar in our, our culture. But slaves weren't members of a household. They, they could be bought and sold. They might be in a household for a period of time, but there was a a temporary nature to that relationship. A son is intrinsically part of a household forever. There's no expectation that the son would ever not be part of a household in that culture. Anyone that's a slave might be externally connected to God's people in that picture, but there's no permanency to that connection. The crowds have no way to a permanent place in God's household without the Son, which is Jesus, and they're blind to that need. Human attempts to earn merit or favor with God are slavery. If one could hypothetically please God through their works, they would be in a position of continuously needing to please God through those works. Now, we, we know that we can't even start to do that, but if we were to start down that path, that would be a path that we would have to do in, indefinitely, permanently, eternally. Um, and so there, there could never be any security in a salvation that's based on works, in the picture that Jesus is giving here, though sons are, are part of a God, are, are, uh, sons are part of God's household, but that's not at all connected to their performance. It's connected to the fact that they are sons, and it's they they have this permanent relationship with God. Now, recently, Tim spent two sermons looking at the subject of adoption, and you know, Tim correctly recognizes the central importance of this idea in the New Testament. We see this idea communicated here. And one of the many blessings of adoption to to sonship is a permanence of a relationship and a confidence that we have in the security of that relationship because we've done anything to earn it. Christ has earned that security for us. Now works, of course, should accompany adoption and, and Tim dealt with that very well in the two sermons that he spent on that. If works aren't apparent what it, the, the wrong response is to try to get works better the right response is to question am I adopted indeed and I would say just look to Jesus the more that you look to him the more that you will fall in love with him and it's that and the more that you will recognize how much you need him because you do need him um, and so the more that you look to him the uh, more you'll want to measure up to, to what he has given you it 's also briefly worth noting that there's actually a yet another claim to divinity. these are throughout the the Gospel of John, but there 's three persons in this picture you know there 's a father that 's very clearly God there 's slaves that 's very clearly human beings, and then there 's the son, and that that person is very distinct from anyone else um, he, but you know, far more connected to God than the, the, the slaves or the servants in the household. Um, it wouldn't make sense for that person in this picture not to be divine. So we're ready to move on to another section that starts in verse 37. But before we do that, I, I think it's helpful to look at, at what sonship would mean in the ancient world. The, this idea is a little bit different in the way that the ancients would have thought than the way that we think today. <coughs> we think of sonship almost entirely you know, in a paternal or a, you know, hereditary sense and that, that idea is certainly present in ancient thinking as well but there's another idea that's much less present today the reason is that today it's perfectly normal for children to grow up and lead very different lives and have very different professions than their parents the reason is that a lot of us have gone to universities. We've gone there with the idea of taking on a specific course of study. And hopefully, if you're making good use of the opportunity of going to a university, you have a career in mind and you're trying to pick up knowledge and skills that will be important in doing well in that career. Um, Let's go ahead and do a show of hands. How many of you have virtually the same job that your parents had? Okay, and it wouldn't be unusual for a few hands to go up. No hands did go up for those that are listening on tape, but it's it's a very small percentage today. In the first century, it would be close to 100%. Um, Universities didn't exist in the ancient world, and what would kind of even pass for schools were very radically different. Most career preparation for the vast majority of the population happened between a father and a son or between a mother and a daughter. And I'm going to quote D. A. Carson, who I think does a really good job on this idea. If your father was a farmer, you became a farmer. You, you became a farmer. If your farmer was a ba- if your father was a baker, you became a baker. If your father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. Which of course is why Jesus could be known both as the carpenter's son and in one remarkable passage as the carpenter. That's Mark six three. Uh, presumably, this took place after Jesus or, uh, after Joseph died. If your family name was Stradivarius, you became a violin maker. You learned your trade, your vocation, even your identity from your father. If you were a farmer, you learned from your father when and how to plant, when and how to irrigate, when and how to harvest, not from the nearby agricultural college. If you made violins, you learned from your father what woods to choose, what sizes and ratios of each piece to maintain, what glues to use, and how to make and apply the finish. To put the matter differently, uh, your father determined your identity, your training, your your vocation. He generated you not only biologically, but shall we say functionally. Um, We also see this idea in the language that's used in the Old Testament. There's a phrase, son of Belial. It's not usually translated that way in English. It comes up more than 10 times and uh, Belial was uh, a god associated with wickedness. Son of Belial in the Old Testament means very closely associated with wickedness. In fact, these people were so wicked wicked, that they learned wickedness at the feet of their father Belial, the god of wickedness, or or something along those lines. He's not So when Jesus is talking about those who pursue peace and calling them sons of God in the Beatitudes, he's not speaking in terms of heredity, obviously. He's speaking in terms of taking on the character of God by doing something that God does. So with that picture of sonship in mind, I think it's helpful then to jump into the next section which starts at 39, but to see the flow of thought, I'm going to start reading in verse 37. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear uh, hear them, is that you are not of God. So the, the first thing that we see in this section is that the people are claiming eventually two different fathers. First, they claim Abraham as their father. That doesn't work. Jesus shows that they are not acting at all in the way that Abraham acted. So then they, they claim God as father. The, um, they're, they're, they're nothing like either, either father. Abraham believed God. This crowd Instead, seeks to kill Jesus for teaching words from God. Anyone who loved the God of the Bible would love Jesus because the crowd, um, sorry, uh, the the crowd, though, hates Jesus when he asserts who he really is. If the crowd were indeed Abraham's children, they would display the same sort of faith that Abraham displayed. If they were genuine uh, sons of Abraham, they would rejoice to see the day that Abraham looked forward to with rejoicing. If God were their father, they would see in Jesus the same things that God sees in Jesus. And they would love Jesus in the same way that God loves Jesus. If God were their father, <clears throat> they would see the same uh, things in Jesus that they oh, sorry. <clears throat> Instead, when when they see Jesus, they want to kill him. That suggests a, a very different sonship. So uh, kind of turning to verse 41. <clears throat> Jesus is addressing here a group that very firmly, although incorrectly, is convinced it, that they already currently have right standing before God. He has, prevented, uh, he has presented very clear proof that their actions, and this is specifically it's their, their desire to kill Him, um, that comes only because Jesus' is teaching words that Jesus has received from God is completely inconsistent with being on God's side. But it's entirely consistent with being on Satan's side They do not need to take this on faith What they need to do is they need to examine the motives in their heart And they'll clearly see that these motives are not The motives of what they're claiming to be They're claiming to be descendants of Abraham but Yet their motives are com- and the actions that result from those motives are completely different They're claiming to be sons of God And the, what they look to and what they hate Is exactly the opposite of what God loves and what God hates so if they examine those motives, they can see it. It's, it's clear. So how do they respond? Uh, the response is, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Now, I think the first thing that comes out here, commentaries are, are, uh, d- disagree on whether this is intended or not, but there may well be a kind of a, a nasty personal attack. And I I would argue that there is because we see a, a nastier one that's unambiguous in the next section that we'll get to next week. It, it probably would have been well known in, in Nazareth and the surrounding communities that Jesus was born out of wedlock or wedlock and of course the circumstances that we know from the Gospels wouldn't have been widely known and probably not widely believed if Mary and Joseph had tried to defend themselves. I, I, I think they probably wouldn't have been wise to do so, and I don't think that they were unwise individuals. So I think that they probably simply had to accept shame of what God asked them to, to do. Now, a lot of Galileans would have been there at the feast, and so the information about Jesus' birth, birth certainly would have been known by some in the crowd, and it probably would have spread. It probably w- was well known, and so I th- I think this is just kind of a, a, a nasty personal attack, but that's uh, not clear, and it's less important. Um, The crowd's response is doing two different things. First, it's defending their heredity. And secondly, it's shifting their parentage to something that they think may be more tenable. We've already talked about how their sonship from God is not tenable, and we'll, we'll get to that. But by stating that they weren't born of sexual immorality, they were showing the depth of their dependence on that heredity for right standing with God. That type of thinking is a lot less prevalent today. You know, we, we're in a culture where descent and heredity aren't particularly important uh, and that's something that most of us would place much confidence in. But you know, simply looking at the number of genealogies that come up in Scripture, we see how important heredity was in, in the thinking of the first century. <clears throat> They're not accepting Jesus' point that it, it isn't physical sonship that matters. Jesus is saying it's the functional sonship that matters. Are you showing you know, a functional relationship to your father? If not, you're not a, a, a true son of that father. And they don't get that point. They, they seem to be more relying on the heredity side of, of sonship rather than the functional side of sonship that D.A. Carson is, is talking about. If they're unable to show that their you know, actions are inconsistent with Abraham's, they're, they're shifting to God. And Jesus just as easily shows that that can't be the case either. He came from God, they don't love him. A, a genuine child of God would recognize Jesus for who he is and would accept the teaching that's given by uh, Jesus as teaching from God. <clears throat> Let's see. Um, I'm going to go ahead and finish up on, on this last point. I'm just kind of trying to keep an eye on time. What does Jesus mean when he says that their father is the devil? Obviously, he doesn't mean this literally. What he means, I think it should be clear at this point, their actions are far more consistent with the actions of Satan than the actions of God that they're claiming as their father. So think through, through Scripture. We see in Scripture this consistent attempt on the part of Satan to wipe out a godly line that's going to lead to Christ. You know, this goes all the way back to the first chapters of Genesis where Cain kills Abel. And you know, it, it would seem for a, a second to a, a reader that's kind of looking at that for the first time that the godly line has been wiped out and there's only going to be an ungodly line of, of, of Cain. Now God steps in and he provides Adam and Eve with another son, that's Seth, and that's where the godly line kind of uh, continued. But that pattern repeats. Now we see you know, infertility when we get to the patriarchs. That's emphasized again and again where you know, the, um, the woman where the, uh, the descent of, of you know, the, the promised Redeemer is going to come from is infertile and God steps in and provides a, a son where that wouldn't be possible. We, we see kind of the same idea with Pharaoh seeking to slaughter all the Hebrew males. The presumptive intent there would be that you know, the women would be you know, married off to Egyptians and the whole culture would be uh, absorbed into Egypt and there wouldn't be a Hebrew culture. And there wouldn't be a godly line to, conti- to continue and to produce the Messiah. Uh, we, we know that the Messiah is going to come from David. Well, by, by this time the prophets see David's line as a stump. Uh, it, it's been cut off. But a root's going to come out of that, and that, that, that's David. And so again and again, the line that the Messiah's uh, come from is, is attacked and murdered by Satan. And I think when Jesus is saying that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, it's this attempt to, to murder and eradicate the line that would produce Christ that he may be referring to. Uh, there's other possibilities, too, and it's not all that important at the end. And even... Um, you know, at, at this period, just 30 years previously, Herod killed every male baby in Bethlehem, trying you know, w- with one last-ditch effort to, to prevent uh, uh, Jesus from you know, growing up. And so I, I think that this is what Jesus is referring to in, in calling Satan a murderer from the beginning, trying to prevent God's deliverer from coming. And by doing the exact same thing that Satan has been doing through history, the crowd is demonstrating what their actual paternity is. So it's not the best spot to leave off, but I, I'm out of time and want to make sure that uh, we, we, we do have time to get set up for the, the church service. I could probably take a quick question if there is one, though. Yes? What Well, eventually we will be completely free of sin. And we're, we see a part of that now. Um, we're described in the New Testament as being not under sin any longer. doesn't mean that we don't continue to sin, but we're not enslaved to it in the same way. Uh, an unbeliever can only sin. There's nothing an unbeliever can, can do that isn't sin. And believers still sin, but... We're not slaves to it in the way that, uh, that an unbeliever is. And there will be a point where we will no longer sin. That, so we, we sort of have this already not yet uh, aspect, I think, to that, that promise there. Mm-hmm. That's how I would answer that, at least. So... Just in the interest of time, I want to make sure we have time to get set up. I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your perseverance with this crowd. This crowd did not deserve your grace. And you stood up uh, in the the face of a a hostile crowd and you proclaimed your gospel. You offered yourself to them. And I know that although many rejected you, some eventually out of this crowd, came to accept you and came to embrace you and came to love, love you. I thank you that you've done the same for us. When we were similarly hostile to you, you opened our eyes to who you are, you brought us into your kingdom, and you made us your sons. I pray that we would live as sons of God the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.